You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents, often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. Bank angle, bank angle, caution, terrain, don't sink, don't sink, glide slow, pull up, wind shear, wind shear, sink rate, pull up, traffic, traffic. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host. I'm the creator of the podcast series. I have a co-host who is not an aviation expert. In fact, she knows very little about aviation. And her role is to ask questions that will help the audience better understand what we're talking about. And uh, her name is Alyssa. Hey, Shannon. How's it going? It's going great. So tell us a little bit about yourself, and then I'll do the shameless plug after uh, after you tell. <laughs> well, first of all, I just want to say that I am flattered that you chose me to be your co-host. Uh, Shannon and I have known each other for a couple years now. We're pretty good friends. A little bit about me. My name is Alyssa Meyer. I am a performer, an entertainer. I dance, act. I produce, choreograph, and So direct. you know nothing about aviation, right? I know zero about aviation Fantastic. besides the fact that you're a pilot. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And I don't want to take the surprise out of it. So you don't know what this podcast is going to be about, right? I don't. Okay. So basically, this is an aviation accident or incident story. And I'm going to tell it in a narrative. So, um, so it's interesting. And then uh, we're going to let Alyssa respond and ask questions and see what we can come up with. Let's see. So first, like I said, or second, the shameless plug. Um, it's actually really what qualifies me to do the podcast. I'm a pilot. I fly a 787 for a major U.S. airline. I've worked extensively in charter and corporate operations, including for a major manufacturer as a demo pilot. I have 11 aircraft type ratings. I've been flying as a professional for 20 years, but I've been a licensed pilot since 1994. I'm trained in safety management. I owned a training consulting company and have a variety of, of aviation experience. So that's kind of what qualifies me. Uh, I'm also trying to get started as a aviation material consultant for creative products um, in literature and film and television. All right. Well, that's that's the shameless self-promotion. You Other have a right that. to be shameless, though. Well, I mean... You I, know your stuff. I do. I know about aviation. So that's what we're here to talk about today. And like I said, like we talked about before, if I were just to read this podcast myself, it would be super boring. So Snore. Exactly. Well, lucky for you, I'm super entertaining. So what have you... So, so first of all, what have you been up to lately? Well, I graduated from uh, the Savannah College of Art and Design and Performing Arts with the BFA in June. And uh, since then, I moved to Atlanta kind of just needed to take a break from the industry. I went to New York and directed and choreographed a summer stock musical, The Great American Trailer That's Park. right. We drove all the way up there. Yes. That Shannon was that was drove 15 hours with me. But mm. like I told you on the way up, I am used to sitting for right. a long period of time. You know, I typically fly six, six hours in a day when I go fly, right. maybe 90 hours a month. I mean, that's yeah. a lot of time to sit there. Since that musical, I've just been, you know, serving in a restaurant, trying to reset myself, and I've been working on my reels. And All right, so we're going to get started. You ready to get started? I'm ready. So February 19th, 1989, that's, that's what we're going to talk about. That's the date of the incident. But before we get there, we're going to talk about the company, and we're going to talk about the airplane, type of airplane, the company, all that stuff. Okay, <laughs> so we're going to talk about this company called Flying Tiger Line, also known as Flying Tigers. Okay. It was the first scheduled cargo airline in the United States. It was a major military uh, charter operator during the Cold War 
for both cargo and personnel. Flying Tigers for military. So the company was started just after World War II with funding from six pilots and some California rich guy. The primary founder was Robert William Prescott. Not that he's really important. And it was originally headquartered headquartered on the grounds of uh, the Los Angeles International Airport, LAX. I love how you say his name and then say that he's not important. <laughs> well, I mean, he was like, I think he was just like, a, I think he was like the lead dude. And he was like a pilot mm-hmm. in World War II. They, what they did is they bought military surplus. Like after World War II, you could actually buy the stuff they used if it, mm-hmm. or didn't crash or whatever in World War II. That's, they, they bought like surplus and then they started to use it as a... Uh, as an airline, as like cargo, to, to haul cargo around All right. with like old military airplanes. Reuse, recycle. And the company grew. It, it grew. And by the 1980s, Flying Tigers operated scheduled cargo service to six continents, 58 countries. And it was actually bigger in transporting cargo than Pan Am Airways at the time, which was the largest airline. So Flying Tigers was a really big company. So at, Flying at Tigers... Peak started with all of the surplus yeah and then they just made a profit and yeah. they ended up being contracted with different yeah and then they just grew and they countries. like changed their airplanes and over the years just kind of grew up okay <laughs> so in 19 in uh, 1980 it was the world's largest cargo carrier and it bought its rival which was called seaborne world airlines i never heard of that because these names i was like four when that happened seaborne so they did military contract services, mostly with what's called a DC-8, which is one of the first jetliners. Okay. Four-engine, really loud thing. But at its peak, the Flying Tigers employed approximately 250 flight attendants, and it carried a record 594 passengers. So it set the record for the most passenger carried in its all coach passenger flights so it did actually run so it wasn't only cargo it ran passenger flights too they also employed a thousand pilots their largest crew bases were lax and jfk right in new york really the trailblazers for what we know as airlines today so really uh, set some set some um, passenger airlines today absolutely yeah but interestingly so they diverged also and you know you know virgin airways yes british airlines well, Virgin started as a record label. Okay. So Flying Tigers also owned a record label just briefly between 1969 and 1971 called Happy Tiger Records. That's adorable. The airline owns a record that company. That just doesn't, yeah. Can't quite understand. Were they just so big that they wanted to like expand? I guess they just had extra money or something and maybe sell money. Someone in had the... an overzealous nephew that wanted his own label. <laughs> I, you know what? You're pro- honestly, you're probably, you probably hit that one. But the airline was sold to FedEx in 1988. So FedEx. Flying Tigers was sold? Yep. Flying Tigers was sold to Federal Express, FedEx. What we now know as FedEx. The event happened on February 19th, 1989. It was owned by FedEx, but they're still flying under their old colors. We're talking about uh, a flight called Flying Tiger 66, and it was flying an international cargo route from Singapore to Hong Kong, but it was making a stop in Kuala Lumpur. Okay. The airplane was a 747-200F model, and the F stands for freight. That was built in 1979. So... By 1989, the airplane was already 10 years old, which isn't unusual. So it was a second generation. So the first generation of 747 is a 747-100. And this is a 200, which is the second generation. And it was built with no windows. So it was freight only, right? So Mm -hmm. that's the F designator. The 747 is sort of the iconic airplane. has four engines, 
has like two levels, you know, it's like the one with the bottom level and then kind of has a hump at the top. If you saw one, you would immediately recognize it. It's, it's very iconic. So like a camel Kind of looks like a, kind of looks like a whale. Okay. Kind of like a big head and then kind of just tapers down. And a loaded and fueled takeoff weight, it weighs around a million pounds. So at the time, it was the largest aircraft, the most capable of hauling cargo. It was also faster and could go farther than any other jetliner under in production. So you had a couple manufacturers then, but they were all trying to play catch up to Boeing. So Boeing is the manufacturer. Yeah. Okay. Being operated by FedEx, but under the name Flying Tigers. So a little convoluted right. there. Yeah. The 747 is actually still in production today. Boeing still produces what's called the 747-800. Remember, we talked about 200. The current 747 is operated by a few companies, British Airways, Lufthansa, a couple others, they, but they and they still make the freight version, although the new one is even larger than the old one. There's only one, air, one production aircraft that's larger than it, and that's the Airbus A380, just a giant airplane. I don't even know. Airbus? The, Airbus, yeah. Airbus. 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 I like I that. I like though. Airbus better. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> That's like when the flight attendant wears like a really low cut top. Oh my God. Airbus. <laughs> all right. All right. Shannon checking out the flight attendants. <laughs> mm. I don't have a whole lot else to do. I mean, my job's done pretty I quickly. And I, I understand. Just, I understand. Just stand around. I mean, I'm what an is, entertainer. There's eye candy everywhere. When there's not eye candy, I'm like, why am I here? Exactly. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. So anyway, United Airlines was the last to operate the aircraft and passenger service, but a number of U.S. freight carriers still fly the 747. Okay, so we're about to get into the events of the day. Are you ready? All right. So the incident. Um, right, the incident. Dun, 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 dun. Um, remember, we're going from Singapore to Kuala Lumpur to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> to Hong Kong. <laughs> Right. That's He's like moving on. <laughs> Kuala Lumpur. Okay. So it took, so at the time it took three pilots to operate the aircraft. You had a captain, you mm-hmm. had a first officer and you had what they, what they call mm-hmm. a sideways seat, which is like a flight engineer. Three's a party. Yep. Absolutely. So, but now only two, two pilots are required. Mm-hmm. That's modern day. But back then you had to have three, the captain, the first officer, the flight engineer. But on this flight, there was also a flight mechanic. He was off duty. Okay, so what was this fourth guy's title again? He was a flight mechanic. Flight mechanic. So he's there to like... So there were two flight mechanics. No. Well, there's a the flight engineer. Engineer. The engineer operates. So basically you have like the captain who sits on the in the left seat. The first officer sits on the right seat. Behind the first officer is like a panel. And that panel is like electrical and fuel monitoring and like fuel balancing. Lots of gauges and stuff. Yeah. In old airplanes, you kind of had to do that. In new airplanes... That's all. Those systems are automated. Yeah, Yeah, they just, it does it itself. So, Mm -hmm. but back then you need a third guy to do it. Now, the interesting thing is that third guy, like he could be older than the pilots. He could like have vision problems. He, he didn't have to be like, he didn't have to fly the airplane. He only had to monitor the board. So in this case, I couldn't find much information about the crew and it's just my philosophy. We're not going to use crew names. I could find some unverified sources that said the flight engineer, right? The guy who's sitting sideways doing all the fuel balancing that he's like 70 years old and he's using either a magnifying glass or like he has really thick glasses to read. That came from several sources, but I couldn't really verify it. I couldn't find the actual like documentation. 
that seems speculating right but that seems just like the guy you want operating your systems right right some dude so he's just back there he's probably not paying any attention to be honest he's back there along for the ride so in this incident in particular we do know that the crew was pretty well seasoned captain had been there for a while we can infer from the transcript so i read the basically the, the transcript of the cockpit voice recorder we can infer that that he seemed really familiar with the kuala lumpur airport so this guy had probably been flying around Asia for like ancient. The, since the fifties or something, you know, or sixties. Like this dude is like, oh, I no, got I'm this, right? Kidding. I got this. I consider this, no sixty problem. and under to be young. Oh, I mean, I do too, but I mean, this guy's just probably just been flying around forever. So he's got, so it's him, and then he's got um, a first officer next to him who's less familiar with the airport, but he's still pretty well seasoned. So the aircraft was assigned what's called a non-directional beacon approach. So it's like a little radio ping, right? A non-directional you, beacon approach. Yeah, so it's like when you're trying to find your phone, you, you oh, go to find phone and right. it like makes a little ping, right? And you go search around for it until you ding. find it. In this particular instrumentation, it basically is an arrow, right? It just points at it. So it's like, it's kind of like a compass, but it points it in a specific direction. And so what is it looking for? So it's just a navigational beacon on the ground. They put it on the ground and then there's a, there's a little dial in the airplane that just points the arrow at it okay so if you are down here it points at it if you're turned the wrong way it points behind you all it does is just point at this little like a little compass yeah it's like a compass basically but instead of pointing at north it points just at this radio station where to land like the yeah northern star yeah so you so you know when you're a pilot you get trained and you can like Mm -hmm. figure out which way to fly toward it you can kind of like if you want to like come from the north and go to the south, like we kind of yeah. know how to do that as pilots. And so they're assigned this approach and they're landing runway 33. So let's decode runways a little bit. So when we say runway 33, it means 330 degrees. So that's what your compass would say when you're landing. Okay. What is, what is north then in degrees? 360 or zero. Okay. Right. And then 180 is south. So 90 is east. And 270 is west. But that's how, I mean, that's how runways are designated by like, you look down at your heading indicator and it says the number of the runway at the top. That kind of tells you you're going the right way. Okay. So I've seen those, those um, markers with the random numbers and letters. Right. And, and you, and as a, as a passenger, just, I'm just like, it didn't yeah. really matter. So the flight from Singapore to Kuala Lumpur Kuala is Lumpur. 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> So they fly for 30 minutes. So in the descent, they're cleared to go to this place called KL. We use letters to designate meaning Kuala Lumpur. Okay. So that's the name. Remember, we talked about the non-directional beacon. That's the name of the beacon. It's called KL. Okay. It has the Morse code of KL. So you can turn on the volume and you can just hear the Morse code. It would just tap out KL. So you kind of know that you're in the right place. But this point was one of four separate points that were all called KL. Three other navigational beacons, all called mm-hmm. KL, and the airport is sometimes referred to as KL. Is that seems reasonable? That's and, not uh, smart. It's not confusing at all, is it? No, it's no. Crystal. Even the local air traffic control referred to the airport as KL. So if he was to say like go direct to KL, you kind of would be like. Well, which one? Like you're telling, you're like, we're leading up to this incident here, right? And as soon as you say there's multiple things called KL, I'm like, this is just asking for something to happen, right? So we're 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 already starting down that road, right? right. So we're like, we start with some confusion. It's just not. 
so as a result, the crew was unsure which point they were actually supposed to go to. Mm -hmm. And the cockpit voice recorder, the CVR, the black box, revealed that the crew argued about which radios should be set to which frequencies Mm -hmm. um, and which like approach to the airport they were actually supposed to do. So they're in the clouds and you kind of have to like fly over the point and then you descend. And then when you come out, the airport's supposed to be there. So that's kind of the point of having the beacon, right? The crew's kind of unsure as which point they supposed to, they're supposed to go to, and they argue about it. You you kind of there's a little bit of friction there, right? All already, and obviously a little bit of confusion during the arrival to the airport. The first officer complains that he doesn't have the approach plate in front of him, and he hadn't seen the approach plate. The approach plate is essentially the map that tells you where you to go. So, he hadn't seen it, and it used to be on paper. It used to be on paper. Now, isn't that are- something that you should check that you have before you get? Yeah. So the interesting thing is, it's on board the airplane. They just don't know where. The first officer is flying the airplane. Okay, so he's flying from the right seat, which is normal. So it's his leg to fly. So the first officer is called the pilot flying. The pilot monitoring is the captain, and the first officer is like, "Hey, where's the where's the where's the map that I'm supposed to follow?" And the captain is basically like, yo, don't worry about it. I got that. But he hasn't seen the chart. He's like, hey, I haven't seen this. And the captain's like, nah, don't worry about it. I know what's going on. So, you know, again. Come on, egos. Nothing nothing bad can happen here, right? (laughs) Communication is key. Right, right. So... So the first officer complains, the pilot flying is the first officer, and he complains that he doesn't have the map in front of him. Let's just take a step back. So at the most basic level, flying an approach to an airport, which is where you get lower and lower and lower till you see the airplane, or till you see the airport, right? Without seeing the chart that you're supposed to fly. Right. Right. So it's like... So it's like the the captain wouldn't let him see it? He didn't pull it out. Yeah. he, He just basically... So this is kind of back when... The captain had like all authority. So the captain wasn't looking at it either. No, no, not nobody was looking at it. Come on. And the guy behind them is just—he's he's off. absent. Yeah, he's just not even there. And then the the we talked about the mechanic. flight mechanic. He's in the back. He's just a passenger on this one. The captain's like, no, you don't need to see it. And the first officer's like, hey, I really want to see it. And the captain's like, nah, I got this. No big deal. He goes. So, but I mean, negligent, right? That's like your blind aunt giving you directions when you're driving a car. Right. Not that you have a blind aunt. I don't. But if you did. But if I did. You would follow her directions in the car? Uh, no. Prob- I would ask for a GPS. Probably, yeah. You'd probably ask to either see a map or mm-hmm. look at a GPS or something. Definitely. Right. That's really what we're talking something. about, right? We're talking about two guys mm-hmm. in an airplane and one of them's like, hey, I want to see the map. Well, and the other guy's like, nah. Yeah. You said the first uh, attendant, he's the one that's actually flying the airplane. So yeah. out of anybody, he should be the one yeah. definitely to have seen the map. And remember, this is after they argued where they were supposed to go. There's already confusion about the, the KL. And so now we don't even know. Now he's just adding to the stress of the, the situation. Right. And the dude's like, well, I don't even know where I'm supposed to go. But um, let me. Uh, I guess I'll just pick a random spot and land in it. Ugh. Of course, there's going to be an incident. Right, of course. You're asking for trouble. He wants to do what's called a precision approach, which is the easiest way to land at an airport. It basically gives you straight line this way and a slope to fly. Math. Just math. Super easy. Rise over run. Right. That's <laughs> and that's funny that you say that. It is literally 20 to 1. That's the, that's the slope. And then there's a line. And there's an arrow that goes fly left, fly right. Fly up, fly down. It's super easy. It's just crosshairs. So that so the pilot flying, he wants to do that approach. Right. 
Because he's confused and he, he's kind of in a conflict with the captain already. And because of how the captain had all the authority back then, he's probably just trying to right, so tread he, water carefully. Right, so he's tr- treading carefully. He kind of gets railroaded. Then air traffic control radios to the flight and says, Tiger 66, descend 2400, cleared for the approach runway 33. Okay, repeat all of that. Okay. The air traffic control says Tiger 66, which mm-hmm. is their flight, descend 2400, cleared for NDB approach, runway 33. Let me break it down. So he's assigning them an altitude. 2400. 2400. Okay. And then he is saying, you're cleared for the approach. So you're the only one. Go ahead and conduct the procedure. They don't have the chart out. So anyway, so he says 2400. And that's really important. Mm-hmm. Then the captain, who is, remember, the pilot monitoring, right? He's not the pilot flying. He reads back, okay, 400. There's a miscommunication here too, right? This is like, it's, there's already no map. There's already three different KLs. And now he has confirmed the wrong altitude. Correct. I'm glad you caught that. We're doing well. I'm glad you caught that. Because he says, descend 2400. What the controller wants them to do is descend to 2,400 feet. Mm-hmm. What the captain reads back is 400, 400 feet. feet. But he's not corrected. Because no. they're in Kuala Lumpur. And Kuala Lumpur. I mean, the guy, the Malaysian controller is speaking English, but that's not his primary language, I'm sure. Right. And the accent is a little hard. So the captain hears mm. 2400. He reads back 400. The controller doesn't catch it. The first officer doesn't say anything, right? He's the pilot flying. He's distracted. And you got the bag of lead sitting back behind the first officer, not paying any attention. So um, Bag of lead. <laughs> right, exactly. So 2400. So 2400 feet, it means 2400 feet above sea level. And the captain reads back 400, 400 feet above sea level. There's a 2,000 foot difference, Big a huge difference. difference, right? They are planning to descend 2,000 feet lower than they're actually assigned. So the problem that you have is you have this huge airplane. It's full of cargo, good amount of fuel, and there's a mountain that sits between them and the airport. And had they had the chart out. Oh, convenient. The map, right? Oh, they I, would have I feel known. like I see where this is going. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, eventually we got to clear it up, right? 2,000 feet mm-hmm. difference. Uh-huh. Plus a mysterious surprise mountain. Yes. So, but they know that there's terrain in the area, right? So this captain should have known. And had they had the chart out, the chart would have said 2,400 feet on it. Come on, captain. We didn't have the chart. Got your head up your butt, sir. I can't with this chart. It's just. I can't with this captain. I know, for real. I just want to smack him. Shake his shoulders like, sir. And, and honestly, the first officer, he's sitting over there and he's like, I want to see the chart. And then the captain's like, nah, I got this. Yeah. And he just goes, okay. And so, okay. Yeah, so at though. least it's not full of passengers. No. That's It only has four total people on board, right? One passenger who's the flight mechanic, but he's actually act- acting right. as a passenger. And then you have the old flight engineer. Right. And then the two pilots. Do you know what they were carrying? Was it anything like explosive or was it just a bunch of... No, I think it was just a bunch of random cargo. Okay. Um, I looked into that a little bit and I couldn't find anything about like what the actual cargo was. There's probably... I mean, I'm sure there's a record somewhere of what it was. It's a 747. We said it was a million pounds, right? With fuel and cargo. That's a lot of cargo. Right. I mean, that this thing can be can carry a whole, whole lot. So now we can see the problem, right? And oh, the mountain... I just came up with a really bad pun. Which is? The captain was just winging it. Oh. 
That is a great one. I'm so glad. You, I'm so. I, I'm so glad you said that. That was awesome. Because <laughs> he was. He was. Um, he was. I mean, this guy. I. But also the first officer. He's just sitting over there, like, I don't know if I have the chart, but it's okay. I. I. I, I the whole crew. Just the whole thing is baffling to me, Guys. right? The problem now is you have this huge aircraft. It's loaded with fuel and cargo. There's a mountain between them and the airport, and the mountain is 1,400 feet tall. So if they were at 2,400 feet, they would clear it by 1,000 feet, which is the correct margin. They're not paying attention to where they are, and they're descending to what they think is going to be the runway, but there's a big hill in the way, right? So now we can see the problem. So let's cover the phraseology a little bit. There's a lot of mistakes. We kind of did, right? Descend 2400. The guy meant T-W-O, not T-O. You know oh, what I mean? Right. The, guy, the, first, the controller was giving him like a number. I see. Okay. Right. He Descend meant to... To TWO400. His proper terminology, terminology should have been descend 2,400 feet. Right. And the captain should have read back, Roger, descend 2,400 2, feet. Not 2,400. Right. Not... Two four zero zero. They both said two four zero zero. So they heard. It's kind of like a. They're. It's like a self licking lollipop, right? Mm-hmm. One of them reads it. The other one reads it back. Everybody hears the same thing, but in actuality, it's captain's winging it. Winging yeah, it. He's winging it. So had the first officer had the chart in front of him, which he, is somewhere in the cockpit. Oh yeah. Just okay. being refused to take right. it out. So in fact, the truth is, so they actually each have one. What? So there's at least. Two, two. two copies in the cockpit. So why There's didn't the first was attendant? First officer. Officer. Why yeah. didn't the first officer just pull his out? Oh, he's flying the airplane. He's got both hands occupied. I mean, also, it has an autopilot. So right. I don't know if they really have an excuse at this point. Like the, the first officer could he have been like. could have like, at least asked the guy behind him that's sitting there doing nothing. Right. Could you grab that for me? Hey, grab that chart. But I think he's scared that the captain was going to yell at him or something. But I mean. What culture are these pilots from? They're probably military background. So a lot of that mentality, you don't question the authority. Exactly. So that's kind of where we are with that, right? It's like, don't question. The captain told you to do this. Don't do that. Like, that's kind of like where we are here. But I've actually heard of a couple other situations like that where someone didn't think it was right, but they did not question the captain because you did not question the captain. And then it was disaster. That took a lot of years to clear up. In fact, in the mid 90s to 2000s when we finally got what's called crew resource management where we're now teaching the first officer to use words like you're putting me in danger i feel unsafe the culture has changed just that mentality right we're 30 years on from this so it's i mean 30 years so it's been uh february 19th uh 1989 so yeah yeah 30 years as of february i mean so that was culture's changed a lot but i mean it's just crazy that that would happen Mm -hmm. but it did but it gets worse okay we're not even there yet you're i know you're like how can it get worse but it gets worse so we already got three strikes here right oh totally the first officer doesn't have the chart in front of him but if he did he would have known but here's the thing this is only considered a contributing factor the cockpit (laughs) voice recorder um reveals several other uh communications errors made by the flight crew prior to the miscommunication and just a general casual nature of the captain. Like, oh, don't worry about it. I've been here a bunch of times. Like, you read it and you're just kind of, I mean. It, so the captain has flown this flight bef- this yeah. flight path before. Yeah. He just forgot about the mountain? 
<laughs> I mean, How do you I, just forget about a mountain? I forget about mountains all the time. I mean, there's like, you know, I, I don't know. I think it was flat then or something. I, it, <laughs> <laughs> Where did this mountain come from? It wasn't here. It wasn't here ago. last time I was in Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> Goodness. Oh, when did this mountain get here? Like, I don't even... No, see, when you said contributing factor... Oh, yeah. Y'all, y'all couldn't I mean... see, but when he said, yeah, my eyebrows furrowed real, real deep. <laughs> 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 the fact that the flight plan wasn't out is just a contributing factor. Contributing factor would be the captain is sleep deprived. They've been flying oh, for this many hours. Right, but when you see where this goes, you're going to go, oh, that is a contributing factor. But oh. I mean, it's just a contributing factor because it just honestly, um, but it I gets feel like worse. like it was really the inciting incident. The, oh, the yeah. inciting incident is oh, what right, right. starts the, the conflict. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If he, if he had had this fight plan out, there would have been no conflict. Right, they wouldn't have argued about That was what... the inciting incident. That's why when you right. say contributing factor, I'm like, no, 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 no. This was mm. the cause initial cause right. inciting incident right but remember that everything else is an effect but remember that, that they fought about they fought about like the radio frequencies and had an argument about like where they were supposed to go so just and then nothing like, is being communicated like at all nothing this entire time yeah like not like they don't even know they, they're they're so confused let me let me catch up where i was so uh the pilot monitoring um which is the captain of this leg uh he's working the radios so he's just like adjusting the flaps, putting the gear down, whatnot. He's getting the aircraft ready to land. And the first officer is just flying the airplane. But here's the interesting thing. At this point, the aircraft is over 10 miles from the airport. They are 12 miles from the airport at this point. So there is never an instance. So they're 12 miles from the airport and they know how far they are from the airport. Because they have something called distance measuring equipment. It's like a little radio that just tells you how far you are. They know how far they are from the airport. When do you descend to 400 feet when you're 12 miles from the airport? Right. I mean, never. Never. Right. So we talked about like rise over run, right? 20 Uh to 1. 12 miles from the airport is basically it's 12 times 300. They should right. be at a minimum of 3,600 feet right now. I mean, when I'm driving right uh, my car and I got GPS, it'll say like in 400 feet. And I can see, right. I can see where it wants me to turn right, from but 400 when, feet. This is sort of the equivalent of like it's within, your GPS saying you're going to turn right in three and a half miles. So you turn on your turn signal and you get in the right lane and you slow down. That's kind of like three the, and a half miles. Right, right. And you go like that's kind of the equivalent. That's how like honestly like brain dead these guys are right now i i don't know what's going on you know we don't know what how what, what was going on in their heads but that's like how brain dead they I'm are shaking my head so hard right now listeners oh, you can't see i can't, i mean i'm just like I, i'm just scoffing and i know this i know this story and just even telling this story is just frustrating like, whoa Ugh. so even in the last moments of the flight the captain is referring to doing the ils approach that we talked about a long time ago the precision approach Right. So he doesn't honestly even know. He doesn't even know what procedure they're supposed to be doing. Sir. I know. What I, is he on? I, 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 it makes me wonder if he's but with like. With a military background, they're probably not on anything. No. I think it's either he's either just full of himself or he's like super sleep deprived. I feel I, like I, it's a mixture. It might be. It's probably a little bit of everything, right? So I know it was bananas before, but it's going to get more bananas. Yeah. So adding. To all of this, there is something they had put in uh, a system years before this that we call JIPWIS. It stands for Ground Proximity Warning System. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Okay. Basically, it says the mountains and stuff, they don't move. So we know where they are. Mountains so, don't move? Captain might think so, but... <laughs> I was going to say, because according to what the captain was doing, I right. just assume that the mountains have recently sprung up. And the airplane looks at its position. It doesn't need the pilots to do anything. It sees where it, where it is by using what's called an inertial navigation system. Something that's pre-GPS, but still no big deal, inertial? right? Inertial? Inertial. It's like it moves forward. It kind of knows how fast you're moving and oh, kind of okay. where you are. And then it recalibrates itself based on Physics. like... Stuff that you see on the ground, stuff it sees on the ground, like radio. Basically, it uses like triangulation and gyros and stuff to kind of locate where it is. It knows the ground. It knows the earth because the earth just doesn't spring up mountains. So it really, so, so the, so the, what we call the JIPWIS, the ground proximity warning system, it knows the mountain is there. Right. The airplane knows the mountain is there. In all of this confusion, the ground proximity warning system starts yelling. It is really, really loud. It issues clear warnings to the crew. Eight times it goes, whoop, whoop, this really loud, whoop, whoop, pull up, pull up, whoop, whoop, like that, right? It's really loud. It does this eight times. They talk over it and they argue over top of it. Sir. (sighs) Sir. The machine. I know. So it even knows, like the the the, oh the, the airplane is like, hey, this you're about to die. Like, like the most <laughs> basic kind of recipe, you know, to follow. Why it sounds what? like this is all very self-explanatory once you're once it, you understand how it works. Incredibly, and now they're ignoring, completely ignoring this loud siren, ass siren and voice that is screaming, pull up, pull up. So they talk right over there's an automatic voice. It's also saying pull up. Yes. Whoop, whoop. It makes a huge whooping sound and it says pull up, pull up. Had they done something on the first few warnings. They would have been fine. Had they like climbed, they would have been fine. So, but they just ignore it. But this is what it's designed to do, right? It's designed to like look out a distance and go, hey, you're going to hit something. And then it gets more insistent the closer you get. And so at the end, it's just screaming, pull up, pull up. And they're ignoring it. The aircraft, like we said, is quite a ways from the airport. It's over 10 miles, actually. Fully configured to land. Gear down, flaps out. It's 2,000 feet low. The jip whiz is screaming, pull up, pull up. They have no charts in front of them. The captain is still talking about an approach that they're not doing. By now, he's getting the first officer to agree on something they're not doing. So now he's talked the other pilot into thinking they're doing an approach they're not doing. And the truth is they're not doing any approach at this point, right? They're way off the chart. Now the captain has actually talked the guy into it. Talked the pilot flying, the first officer, into thinking that... My mouth, my jaw is just dropped hanging open right now. You know, what could go wrong? Oh my gosh. Right, so at least there's only four guys in the airplane. Well, four too many. Right, four too many. Absolutely agree. So the PF looks down at his radar altimeter, which is just a distance. It measures how far am I to the ground? And the, just a little radar the blip. The PF is Pilot the... flying, okay. right? He's the first officer. He's flying the airplane. It, it's a radar gun, basically. It just looks down at the ground. The PF says, I've got 100 feet on the... Well, now, you know how mountains work, right? Normally, they're not just cliffs. Mm-hmm. So he's got 100 feet because they're at 400 feet and it's... Right? So the hill is kind of rising up. So... At this point, they're only 100 feet above the ground. 
Right. That's so low. And they're still ignoring the Jipwiz. They're still about 11 miles from the airport. So honestly, at this point, it's actually too late. Even if they had figured it out, they have a 1,400 foot mountain in front of them literally seconds away. Do you not see this mountain approaching from the... Well, okay. Yeah, we didn't cover this, actually. That's that's actually good. So they're in clouds. because So they're in the Pacific Rim. And like on one side of the mountain is like the wind always blows and makes clouds come up. Okay. So it's like basically they're, they got clouds on, on this side of the mountain. Had they gotten over the top, had they cleared the mountain, they would have been able to see the airport as soon as they started to descend a little tiny bit. The first officer says they got 100 feet on the... The captain says, oh, and the first officer says, shit. So the voice recorder ends. So that's what happened. And she's just staring at me. It is really unbelievable. So this kind of stuff. I mean, this is what I we're going to cover. This is really this podcast know. right here. There, I was hoping for some kind of redemption, something that this wouldn't happen. I like, Obviously, it's it's been going towards crash for a minute here, but still, I'm still right. dumbfounded. Right. And so, right. Because then uh, the captain says, oh. Oh. <laughs> Too late, buddy. Here's Put the, your pride to the side is the moral of this story. So at any point. Read your maps. <laughs> right. So at any point, think about all the things that went wrong. So at any point. Hey, there are so many factors. They could have stopped this. Sir. Like way back at the KL thing, right? Way back. Or had they just gotten the chart out? Way back. Or, just the chart. The chart. There's a reason they make those for you. These guys are actually breaking what's called standard operating procedures. It well, sounds so, like it. Yeah, they're supposed to have the chart up regardless. It sounds like they should have checked it out before they even took off. Right. They should have briefed it. They should have. Well, right. we do something called brief, right? We, so we like go over the chart and like we talk about everybody's what we're going to do. Page. Everybody's on the same Literal same There's page. There's no kind of. Uh, we literally check the page number. Hey, are you on this page? Guy next to me goes, yeah, I'm on this page. Because you don't want to be having arguments when you're close to landing. And they don't ha- even have a chart out. And so they're definitely breaking the standard operating procedure. So they're way out of the box. Don't wing it. Moral of this story. <laughs> Lots of morals he, to this story. <laughs> I think he thinks, I, I really think the captain thinks that he just knows the airport so well or something. God, or uh, he's he like he thinks he knows the airport really well and then he's also just trusting the controller to like Okay, so yes, it sounds like airplanes are designed to make things simpler for you. Oh yeah. Very much. But you also have to just have a little bit of deductive reasoning. A tiny bit. And a little bit of initiative. Right, so there's something called the minimum descent altitude. So on this approach, like the minimum that you could descend to is actually higher than 400 feet. So had they had that chart out, they would have been like 400. No, they would have been like 400. What's he mean? The lowest hey. we can go is like 608 or something, whatever it is. This is an old chart. So we don't really, you know, I don't really have access to this one anymore. But there's so many mistakes. I mean, it's just a litany of mistakes, right? It's just that just keeps going and going. It's like, do you want to be right or do you want to be dead? Yeah. I, I usually say, do you want to be right or do you want to be in a relationship? But <laughs> I, this scenario, it's I be think right the, or be dead. I mean, I think the captain just wanted to be right. Oh, toxic masculinity. There's a level of that here. I mean, these guys are, there's so much ego going on with the captain. And he's like, eventually he's like, convinced the pilot flying the right. first officer that he even knows what he's doing and the, the the approach that he's talking about was actually 
on the like the news called the ATIS, the Airport Information Service, that it was not working. They didn't even listen to the airport information when they went to land. And it's actually and that information where the ILS, where the approach they think they're doing is it's even published in what's called notums, notices to airmen that it's not working. So not only does he think they're doing this approach, but that approach was on the airport information as not working. And it's on his like printed notices that it's not working. So even if they had wanted to do that approach, they couldn't because it was out of service. It was not working. That's why he was assigned the NDB approach, because you really want to do the ILS and the controller wants you to do it, too. It's easier for him. (laughs) So he had probably done the ILS approach before. And because he didn't check his chart or listen to the information or really, I mean, just he was being a know-it-all. He caused three deaths plus himself. Plus himself. Yeah. You mentioned something about how the flight mechanics family sued. Right. The other three... I don't, they, they didn't get a settlement. So they'll get an insurance settlement just because the aircraft is insured. They'll just get the insurance settlement. But the flight mechanic, his family sued and actually FedEx settled. I couldn't find the amount. I'm assuming it was probably a pretty big amount because this guy was just along for the ride. Right. So he had nothing to do with the crash, right. essentially. See, what I'm wondering is when the airplane was going, whoop, whoop, pull up. Why didn't he run to the front of the airplane? Maybe he he did. He might not have been able to hear it. He also might have been asleep. He was like in the back. There's like a huge airplane. There's a bunk. Yeah. He's probably back there in the bunk just sleeping or chilling. So not thinking that all of this is going on. I feel like you would have been able to feel that anxiety from the front of the plane. (sighs) I mean. Energy is a real thing. So they never saw the mountain coming, right? The 747-200 freighter, it impacted the hillside 437 feet above sea level. Remember, we said that descend to 400 feet. Level in landing configuration, uh, 150 miles an hour. It killed all four people on board, two pilots, a flight engineer, and the aircraft mechanic. The subsequent fire burned for two days. So that's how much cargo was in the aircraft and fuel, right? So it it burned for more than 48 hours. All right, tell me about this mountain. Were there anybody living on or near it no okay so there's like a, a village below kind of down was down that village the... affected by the fire no no well still the environmental impact oh of that i mean too, huge but... for sure but at least nobody on the ground was killed oh my god <laughs> trust the machinery that is designed to protect you uh-huh and um just pay attention pay attention yeah uh, follow protocol yeah do your job and uh, if something doesn't sit right with you, speak up. Say something. Say something. Say something, say something, right? The moral is do your job. <laughs> like you're, how you're supposed to do it. That's, I mean, I think that's the whole thing, he was right? really leaving that up to chance. Got, right. He was really playing with destiny mm-hmm. there. Yeah, he was. Flirting hard. In a lot of ways, this guy just does. He was he, asking for it. He's digging his grave the whole time. Sounds I mean, the whole like time. It. It's, it's crazy. When I first started looking at this, I found a lot of literature where pilots were blaming the Kuala Lumpur controller for saying 2400. Oh, my God. Okay. That is technically not the right terminology. Okay. But English is a second language. Right. Right. When you when you were in France and somebody gave you directions and you couldn't quite understand what they were saying, you listened, number one, and you like 
try to follow along on a map or you like try to think mm -hmm. about it in your head. They can tell that you're not following, so they break it down for you. Right. But it's you not going to be a or, perfect translation. Or you ask a question. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't miss this part. They didn't do any of that. So when I first started doing research, I found that a lot of U.S. pilots and um, just random people in the U.S. I mean, everybody has a voice on the Internet, right? But they are blaming the Kuala Lumpur controller. And he did use the wrong terminology, but these guys are essentially buffoons. They are stumbling through this and they're making every mistake along the way as they go. So I just can't see that it was the controller. No, no way. Is it's it contributing, but it's small. Yeah, I would say that that is a contributing factor. Them not pulling out the map, that's not a contributing factor. I would say that's the inciting incident. Right. So so this is what the... But his saying 2400 definitely didn't help, but I would definitely not point the blame finger at him not directly mm -mm. and actually the ntsb doesn't and they say it was caused by a failure to follow standard operating procedure just about to say that that's what they said mm -hmm. meaning they didn't set the frequencies correctly they didn't have the chart in front of them they didn't brief it they didn't listen to the airport information they didn't read their literature that said these approaches are out of service like you're flying a real plane when you're they not in a video game so realistically yeah, you can't rewind. And airplanes don't just go back. I mean, you can't like put on the brakes and be like, hey, um, let me think about this Hard for a minute, cost. right? Yeah, or like stop and ask somebody for directions. 150 miles an hour. Yep. 150 miles an hour. It's really fast. It is. And it's aluminum, so. Right. No crumple zones. <laughs> oh, gosh. No. They're, they're the crumple zone. That's the problem. The cockpit is the crumple zone. Yeah, um, like I remember when I was telling you that I have really bad anxiety when I fly. Right. And you said, you know, the pilots got families. If you think about it, like if we're going to crash, I'm going to be the first one to go. Right. I'm going to be smushed. Right, right. Before anybody before else. Before anybody else. That's right. So I'm definitely going to make sure that I'm doing what I need to be doing. Truth. Yeah, so the anyway. crumple zone. These guys. Oh. So failure to follow our standard operating procedure. So it's kind of this blanket statement, right? Right. That it kind of goes over everything we talked about. That is like, it was just so much buffoonery in a, in a way that it was just crazy. Let's talk about what's changed. So we know what happens to this crew and it's sad. It's also, I mean, it's a lesson. So now we have enhanced, what's called enhanced ground proximity warning system. And the difference is the warning system starts farther out. And it gets progressively more demanding. It also brings up a graphic in front of you. Like it automatically activates a graphic that shows red in front of you to like say, hey, there's a mountain there, right? And the, and the closer you get, the worse it gets. And it, it used to just say pull up, pull up. But now it starts with terrain, terrain. And then it's like progressively gets more demanding. And eventually it starts whooping and saying pull up. And it brings a graphic up in front of you. So if you're sleeping or this guy, you'll at least. <laughs> <laughs> or this guy. Yeah. You this. can either be sleeping or this guy. Or to have not. Those are the two choices. Not understood. <laughs> those are the two choices. These warning signals. Yeah, what do you want to be? Sleeping or this guy? <laughs> Neither. I think in this case, I might I'd rather be sleeping. I mean, I think that's a better excuse. <laughs> i don't know if i can agree with that one i love it I love sleeping it. on the job that's not an excuse i think sleeping on the job is probably better than like it, this is intentional like negligence right? right well it sounds like also like he had this sort of mentality that was somehow 
cultured. Right. Throughout oh. his lifetime, he uh, had oh, to yours. be right. See, now and, we're getting, but now we're getting, you know, now we're getting into cultural. Sh- like, not, this, not, no, not no, you're right. Culture, you're right. But more like, you know how your environment shapes you. You know, so if he was a military background, there are a lot of different factors that can contribute to the way that he was being, I am in charge. I am Mr. Know-it-all. You listen to me or else. Right. But this you is, know what I mean? but this is a manifestation of like so macho male like culture too. Sleeping. Okay. Years and years and years of this mentality being shaped. Yeah. I feel like sleeping is not the better yeah. excuse. No, I agree. I would rather have been sleeping. <laughs> right. But I don't know if it's a better excuse. But instead, <laughs> I, I wasn't sleeping, but instead I was just a complete idiot. <laughs> I just decided. Would you rather be guy. a complete knucklehead or unconscious? <laughs> <laughs> right. I I feel like people would forgive him more. If he was unconscious. Right. If he had been like, oh, I'm so tired and just fell asleep. But then there's the whoop, whoop, right. roll up, right, bitch. Right. <laughs> bitch. But I feel like if the dude was sleeping, the first officer would have been like, maybe like nudged the guy back behind him and said, hey, wake up. Give me the chart. Give me the chart. <laughs> give, me the, <laughs> give me the fucking chart back there. It's just like, whew. So anyway, the Jip Whiz has gotten a lot better, right? So now it's in, it's called enhanced Jipwiz because it does all those extra things. We also teach the escape maneuver. So this type of accident is called controlled flight into terrain. So essentially they are very the aircraft is under control. They're not they didn't lose control of the airplane. They just flew it into something. They flew it into a mountain. So the airplane was under control. They just decided to fly <laughs> and it into something big. All warning signals. Right. So anyway, we do an escape maneuver now. Uh, we're taught the escape maneuver. It's like full power, full pitch. Vroom, it, straight up in the air. Get, get, get out of there as quickly as you can. As far as crews, captains don't really act like this anymore. It, like we said, this was 30 years ago, right? And mm-hmm. things were different. We're going to do a few more episodes about like what we call a crusty old captain. But Ooh. this guy is a crusty old captain. He bullies his first officer into making critical mistakes. And I don't feel like the first officer would have done that without the guy there. Like you said, if the guy had been sleeping, it would have been better. Because the pilot it flying. sounded like he was genuinely trying to follow protocol, and he was being just—I don't know what the word is I'm looking for—but just walls he was are being to be a thrown up. Don't make a mistake. Like first officers are very experienced pilots, right? So you know, so it's not like you didn't have to do something special to be a captain. You just had to be there long enough to be a captain. I see. That's it. Just kind of tenured, kind of. You rise. Exactly. You eventually get to that spot. Exactly. You just wait. You said something about, you know. Right. There's older people uh, in higher levels than you and they act a certain way and you're like, you know, I don't have to take your job. I just have to wait for your job. That's it. Yep. And that's true. And I'm, yeah. And I'm a first officer for major airline. And so that's basically it. The people that I fly with typically much older than me or somewhat older than me. And they've just... They got to be a captain because they were just there long enough. Yeah. They made them, they passed the They passed the pilot skills test essentially, and they were there long enough. The So the first officer, he's not a student. Right. He's not like an intern. He's as qualified as the captain. He just doesn't want to question the guy. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, right? He's on this trip with the guy and he's probably on the road with this guy for a couple weeks. Right. Or maybe at least a week when I do mm-hmm. what's called a pairing, which is like they put me with a captain and... We go fly. It can be four or five days long. We didn't want to start out on the first leg, me being like 
you're messing mm-hmm. you're fucking it up over and the there, captain you know? probably had the power and the ability to uh hurt his reputation oh, if he I'm rubbed sure. him the wrong way he could write him up or he could like complain to the company mm-hmm. probably couldn't take his get his get him fired or anything but yeah. he could like but honestly the fact that you said that the black box that mm-hmm. was recording everything could have backed him up on any of that absolutely Absolutely. So he really doesn't have much of an excuse. No, he doesn't. And the union, and had that happened, the union, like, had totally would have had pulled the box, listened to it, and been like, oh, whoa. Right. So this was so close. And there are incidents, and we may cover some um, later, but there are incidents where the first officer does stand up to the captain and, like, saves the day. So it only takes one person. Mm -hmm. There's three people in this cockpit. None of them make any recognition. And so. He gets bullied. Then they weren't empowered. Now first officers are empowered to say, stop. This is unsafe. This is dangerous. For instance, not much can get you fired at an airline, but intentional noncompliance, right? Intentionally like not. So if a captain did that, I could say, hey, let's go talk to the chief pilot. And I could march that captain to the chief pilot's office and be like, this person did this. And they would get disciplinary action they, they wouldn't get fired on their first time or whatever but um they would get disciplinary action they might get sent back to training they might end up with a disciplinary letter or something like that that says don't be non-compliant because of incidents like this right there are so the thing is like yes there are only four, only i put air quotes on that four deaths but also you have to think about all the other people's lives that you're impacting right the right. the forest fires that you started, the people right. that lost money on the cargo, all the families. Oh, yeah. oh I'm sure. And so yeah, it's just consideration. It's everybody. Yeah, there's a level of for consideration. others. Yeah, and I f- I really find that if you do truly consider others, you have very little ego. So all of this accident further stressed the need for increased awareness with flight crews. Right, it really is an amazing like what not to do lesson is this as a something pilot. that they put in all the. Yes. Pilot schools. So we so we cover this in pilot school and training. Um, so my sources for this are like I read the CVR cockpit voice recorder transcript. I watched the NTSB reenactment of the crash from YouTube. I read the Wikipedia article. I did some research on my own. Dug into some other articles. It kind of all agrees, and that's why I started the podcast with this with this one in particular. Was this is like a super good example of what not to do. There are very few other examples of so many mistakes, like so many mistakes as we go. It's iconic. Yeah, it really is. There's so many. They basically make a mistake at every point they can make a mistake. They make it. The only thing they do right is fly the airplane, but they don't even do that really well because then they ignore it when it says, hey, don't fly into a mountain and they ignore it. So they can't even fly the airplane correctly. And so that's why I started with this one. It's like. How unprofessional can you be? See, you remember when I told you going back, I said I have anxiety on airplanes. Yeah. Is this helping? (laughs) (laughs) I'm only flying an airplane that I'm only going on an airplane that you're flying from now on. (laughs) I'm not kidding. No. (laughs) I mean, we we are all like higher level professionals than these guys now. I mean, mean, it is rare. Thirty years ago. Yeah, I mean, it was 30 years ago. But also, I am definitely taking that tip and saying to the flight attendant, I'm an anxious flyer. Yes. And the pilot's going to come talk to me, and I'm going to hold his hand and right. look in his eyes. Yeah, absolutely. If you <laughs> And make sure that he's not on something. Yeah, and if you honestly, if you do say to the flight attendant, I'm really nervous, 
they will be like, oh, okay. And they'll actually go tell the captain. And the captain, most of the captains I fly with are really great men and women. And they'll come back and talk. And by the way, women can fly airplanes too. I fly with female captains all the time. I never doubted that. I'm just saying that because of the hyper-masculine, like... Well, I was just saying because of that time period, you said they get a military background. Right, right. That's, that's the only reason I was saying that. Now, I always encourage women to get into aviation because 7% of, of pilots are women. That's a very small percentage. It is. Still today, 7%. So you can imagine 30 years ago when this happened, how many female pilots there were. This is why it was like such a big deal for Amelia Earhart to like fly around the world. I mean, it was a huge deal because there were just not very many women pilots. Right. I think that like during World War II, there was a need. So Amelia Earhart was kind of like a little precursor to that. And then there was a need for some pilots during World War II to be females. But then once they didn't need them anymore, they didn't they weren't the ones that became like airline pilots. They were the ones that just got kicked out of the, basically just left the service and then went home and had babies. And their husbands who were pilots like became the airline pilots. And that's, you know, the hyper masculinity of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And then women got more of a bad name because they started being flight attendants and they dressed them up sexy. And and so it was like, we can't, like, women can fly airplanes, you know. So I always want to bring that up because... I encourage all women to like go and operate airplanes and be pilots. I mean, the industry is. Yeah, we can do what men can do. Absolutely. And we're in a pilot shortage right now. And so women can absolutely not be know that. pilots. Huge pilot shortage. In the next 10 years, it's estimated that the world is going to be over 100,000 pilots short. Because the population grows, we have to carry those people. And not as many people are training to be pilots. So there's a huge like gap for women to like really get into aviation so i know i'm male but i i want to just throw it out there hmm. women can can be pilots but should so i'm going to wrap this up we've been at this for a while so that's episode one of what goes up thanks Alyssa. thanks for uh sitting in and asking questions and being really shocked <laughs> this was fun that was a great story so i've got a bunch of more stories and we'll get to them soon uh next episode until next time exactly thank you just wing it. <laughs> <laughs>